So I thought I would return to the Ajahn Chah book, Being Dharma, translations of Paul Breider. And this start a new section called Practicing Dhamma, The Path to Peace. Our practice is to work at removing desire, aversion, and delusion, the mental afflictions that can be found within each and every one of us. They are what hold us in the round of becoming and birth and prevent us from achieving peace of mind. Realizing peace involves working not only with the mind, but with the body and speech as well. Before you can practice with your body and speech, you must be practicing with your mind. But if you only practice with your mind and neglect your body and speech, that won't work either. Practicing with the mind until it's smooth, refined, and beautiful is similar to producing a finished wooden pillar or plank. Before you can have an attractive varnished pillar, you must first cut a tree. Then you cut off the rough parts, the roots and branches, before you split it, saw it, and work it. Practicing with the mind is the same. You have to work with the coarse things first. You work through the rough to reach the smooth. In Dhamma practice, you aim to pacify and purify the mind, but it's difficult to do. So you have to begin with externals, body and speech, working your way inward until you reach that which is smooth and resplendent. You can compare it with a finished piece of furniture, such as chairs and tables. They may be attractive now, but once they were just rough bits of wood with branches and leaves that had to be planed and worked. This is the way you obtain furniture that is beautiful or a mind that is perfect and pure. Therefore, the right path to peace, the way the Buddha showed for attaining true happiness, is sila, morality, samadhi, meditative concentration, and wisdom. This is the path of practice. It is the way to complete abandonment of craving, attachment, aversion, and confusion. This path involves going against our habitual tendencies of taking it easy and wanting enjoyment and comfort. So we have to be ready to endure some difficulty and put forth effort. The Buddha taught that this is the way the practice is for all of us. All of his disciples who finished their work and became fully enlightened had previously been ordinary worldly beings like us. They had arms and legs, eyes and ears, greed and anger, just like us. They didn't have any special characteristics that made them particularly different from us. They practiced and brought forth enlightenment from the unenlightened, beauty from ugliness, and great benefit from that which was useless. You must understand that you have the same potential. You are made up of the five aggregates, just as they were. You have a body, pleasant and unpleasant feelings, memory and perception, thought formations and consciousness, as well as a wandering and proliferating mind. You can be aware of good and evil. Everything's the same. No, those who became enlightened in the Buddha's time were no different from us. They all started out as ordinary, unenlightened beings. Some had even been gangsters and murderers. The Buddha inspired them to practice for the attainment of path and fruition. And these days, in similar fashion, 
People like you are inspired to take up the practice of morality, meditation, and wisdom. <clears throat> if the mind is able to look after itself, it is not so difficult to guard speech and bodily actions, since they are motivated and supervised by the mind. Mind is where the intentions for all your actions originate. You learn to look after yourself with mindfulness. You learn to look after yourself with mindfulness, the one who knows, who is the same one who formerly motivated you to perform unrestrained and harmful actions. Then, through restraint and caution, your speech and actions become graceful and pleasing to the eye and ear, while you yourself remain comfortable and at ease within this restraint. Continuous restraint where you consistently take care with your actions and speech and take responsibility for your behavior, is sila, being unwavering in the practice of mindfulness and restraint is samadhi. This is samadhi as an external factor in the practice, used in keeping sila. However, it also has an inner, deeper side. Once the mind is intent in the practice, and sila and samadhi are firmly established, you will be able to investigate and reflect on your experience of different inner and outer phenomena. When the mind makes contact with different sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations, or ideas, the one who knows will arise and establish awareness of like and dislike, happiness and suffering, and the different kinds of mental objects and conditions that you experience. If you are mindful, you will see the objects that pass into the mind and your reactions to them. The one who knows will automatically take them up as objects of contemplation. That aspect of discerning the good from the bad and the right from the wrong, from among all the phenomena in your field of awareness, is wisdom. This is wisdom in its initial stages, and it matures as the practice progresses. This is the way morality, meditation, and wisdom are practiced in the beginning. As you, continue, as you continue the practice, fresh attachments and new kinds of delusion begin to arise in the mind. This means you start clinging to that which is good or wholesome. You become fearful of any blemishes or faults in the mind, anxious that your samadhi will be harmed by them. At the same time, you begin to be diligent and hard-working, and to love and nurture the practice. Whenever the mind makes contact with phenomena, you become fearful and tense. You become aware of other people's faults as well, down to the slightest things they seem to be doing. They, they seem to be doing wrong. This is because you are concerned for your practice. This is practicing on one level, based on having established your views in accord with the essential foundations of practice taught by the Buddha. You continue to practice like this as much as possible. You might even reach a point where you are constantly judging and finding fault with everyone you meet. You are constantly reacting with attraction and aversion to the world around you, becoming full of all kinds of uncertainty and continually attaching to views about how to practice. It's as if you become obsessed with the practice. But don't worry about this yet. At this point, it's better to practice too much than too little. Practice a lot, 
and dedicate yourself to looking after body, speech, and mind. You can never really do too much of this. Once you have a, found, a, once you have a foundation, there will be a strong sense of shame and fear of wrongdoing established in the heart. Whatever the time or place, in public or in private, you will not want to do anything that is harmful to yourself or others. The practice of mindfulness and restraint with body, speech, and mind, and the consistent distinguishing between right and wrong is what you hold as the focus. You become concentrated in this way, and by unshakably sticking to this way of practice, the mind actually becomes sila, samadhi, and wisdom. As you continue to develop your practice, these different qualities are perfected together. However, practicing at this level is still not enough to produce the factors of jhana, or meditative absorption. The practice is still too coarse. However, the mind is already quite refined, on the refined side, of course. For an ordinary, unenlightened person who hasn't been looking after the mind or practicing meditation and mindfulness, just as much is already something quite refined. It's like a poor person to whom having a few hundred dollars can mean a lot, though for a millionaire, it's almost nothing. A few hundred can be a lot when you're hard up. In the same way, even though in the early stages of practice you might only be able to let go of the coarser mental afflictions, this can still seem quite profound if you are unenlightened and have never practiced and let go before. At this level, you can feel some satisfaction at being able to practice to the full extent of your ability. If this is the case, it means you have entered the correct path. You are traveling along the very first stage, which is something quite difficult to sustain. As you deepen and refine it, sila, samadhi, and wisdom will mature together from the same place, from the same raw material. It's like coconut palms. They absorb water from the earth and pull it up through their trunks. By the time the water reaches the coconut itself, it has become clean and sweet even though it is derived from that plain water in the ground. The palm is nourished by what are essentially the coarse earth and water elements, which it absorbs and purifies, and these are transformed into something far sweeter and purer than before. In the same way, the practice has coarse beginnings, but by refining the mind through meditation and reflection, it becomes increasingly subtle. As the mind becomes more refined, mindfulness becomes more focused. The practice actually becomes easier as the mind turns more and more inward to focus on itself. You no longer make big mistakes or deviate wildly. When doubts occur in different situations, such as whether acting or speaking in certain ways are right or wrong, you simply halt the proliferation of mental activity and through intensifying your effort, turn your attention deeper inside. Samadhi becomes progressively firmer and wisdom is enhanced so you can see things more clearly and with increasing ease. The end result is that you can clearly see the mind and its objects without having to make any distinction between mind, body and speech. You see that the body depends on the mind in order to function. 
However, the mind is constantly subject to different objects, contacting and conditioning it. As you continue to turn inward and wisdom matures, eventually you are left contemplating the mind and its objects, which means you start to experience the body as something immaterial. The body's physicality is experienced as formless objects that come into contact with the mind. Now examining the nature of mind, you can observe that in its natural state, it has no preoccupations. It's like a flag on the end of a pole or like a leaf on a tree. By itself, it remains still. If it flutters, that is because of the wind, an external force. In its natural state, the mind is the same, without attraction or aversion, without ascribing characteristics to things or finding fault with people. It is independent existing in a state of purity that is clear, radiant, and stainless. In its natural state, the mind is peaceful, without happiness or suffering. This is the true state of the mind. So the purpose of practice is to seek inwardly, investigating until you reach the original mind. Original mind is also known as pure mind. It is the mind without attachment. It isn't affected by mental objects and doesn't chase after pleasant and unpleasant phenomena. Rather, it is in a state of continuous wakefulness, thoroughly aware of all it experiences. When the mind is like this, it does not become anything and nothing can shake it. Why? Because there is awareness. The mind knows itself as pure. It has reached its original state of independence. This has come about through the faculty of mindfulness together with wise reflection, seeing that all things are merely conditions arising out of the confluence of the elements without any individual controlling them. In the past, because the roots of desire, aversion, and delusion already existed in the mind, Whenever you caught sight of the slightest pleasant or unpleasant feel thing, the mind would react immediately. You would take hold of it and have to experience either happiness or suffering. And you would be constantly involved in these mental states. Through wise reflection, you can see that you are subject to old habits and conditioning. The mind itself is actually free, but you have to suffer because of your attachments. That's how it is as long as the mind doesn't know itself, as long as it is not illumined. It is not free. It is influenced by whatever phenomena it experiences. In other words, it is without a refuge, unable to truly depend on itself. In contrast to this, the original mind is beyond good or bad. But when you separate from original mind, Everything becomes uncertain, and there is unending birth and death, insecurity, anxiety, and hardship, without any way of bringing it to cessation. Ordinarily, if someone criticizes you, you will feel upset. Accepting sense impressions without full mindfulness in this way causes an experience like being stabbed. This is clinging. Once you have been stabbed, there is becoming change, and this is the cause for birth into some further state. 
But if you train yourself not to attach importance to phenomena, nothing is created in the mind. It would be like someone scolding you in a foreign language. The words would have no meaning for you, so you wouldn't absorb the information and create suffering for yourself. Samadhi means a mind that is firmly concentrated, and the more you practice, the firmer it becomes. The more you contemplate, the more confident you become. It becomes easier to know the arising and passing away of consciousness from moment to moment. The mind becomes truly stable to the point where it can't be swayed by anything at all. And you are absolutely confident that no phenomena whatsoever have the power to shake it. The mind experiences good and bad mental states, happiness and suffering, because it is deluded by its objects. The objects of mind are the objects of mind, and the mind is the mind. If the mind is not deluded by them, there is no suffering. The undeluded mind can't be shaken. This is the state of awareness in which all phenomena are viewed entirely as elements arising and passing away. It might be possible to have this experience yet still be unable to fully let go. Whether you can or cannot let go, don't let this bother you. Before anything else, you must at least develop and sustain this level of awareness and fixed determination. You have to keep at it and destroy the afflictions through determined effort, penetrating ever deeper into the practice. Having discerned the Dhamma in this way, the mind will withdraw to a less intense level of practice, which the scriptures describe as the mind undergoing, quote-unquote, change of lineage. This refers to the mind that has experienced a transcending of the boundaries of the ordinary human mind. It is the mind of the ordinary, unenlightened person breaking through to the realm of the noble, awakened being. But this is still taking place within the mind of the ordinary, unawakened person. Such an individual is someone who, having progressed in his practice until he gains temporary experience of Nibbāna, withdraws from it and continues practicing on another level because he has not yet completely cut off all afflictions. It's like someone in the middle of stepping across a stream. They know for certain that there are two sides to the stream, but they're unable to cross over it completely, so they step back. The understanding that there are two sides to the stream is similar to the change of lineage. It means that you know the way to go beyond the mental afflictions, but are still unable to go there. Thus, you step back. Once you know for yourself that the state of transcendence truly exists, exists, this knowledge remains with you constantly as you continue to practice meditation and develop your spiritual perfections. You are certain of both the goal and the most direct way to it. Simply speaking, this state that, is, that has arisen is the mind itself. If you contemplate according to the truth of the way things are, you will see that only one path exists and there is nothing else to do in life but follow it. You understand that states of happiness and suffering are not the path to follow. <clears throat> Attaching to either will cause suffering to arise. You understand this and are mindful with this right view. 
But at the same time, you're not yet able to fully let go of your attachments. So you must walk the middle path, which means being aware of the various states of happiness and suffering, while at the same time keeping them at a distance. Whenever the mind attaches to states of happiness and suffering, awareness of the attachment is always there. You don't encourage or give value to the positive states even as you're holding on to them, and you don't despise or fear the negative states. This way, you can observe the mind as it actually is, and at all times, you take the middle way of equanimity as the object of mind. Equanimity will necessarily arise as the path to follow, and you must move along that path little by little. When eventually the mind is fully aware of the various positive and negative states, it is able to lay aside the happiness and suffering, the pleasure and sadness, to lay aside all that is of the world and so become the knower of the world. The mind in full knowing can then let go and settle down for the reason that you have done the practice and followed the path to this point. You know what you must do to reach the end of the path, and you keep striving to uproot and dislodge your attachments. Focusing on the conditions of mind from moment to moment, it's not necessary to be interviewed by a teacher about your state of mind or to do anything special. When there is attachment to happy or unhappy states of mind, there must be the clear and unwavering understanding that any such attachment is delusion. Such attachment is attachment to the world, being stuck in the world. What is it that creates the world? The world is created and established through ignorance, because we are not aware that the mind gives importance to things, fashioning and creating sankhara, mental formations, all the time. It's here that the practice really becomes interesting. Wherever you have attachment, you keep working at that point. You're in the process of finishing the job. The mind doesn't let a single experience slip by. Nothing can withstand the power of your mindfulness of wisdom. Even if the mind is caught in some unwholesome state, you know it as such and are not heedless. It's like stepping on thorns. Of course, you don't try to step on thorns. You try to avoid them. But nevertheless, sometimes you step on one. When you do, how does it feel? Once you know the path of practice, you know that which is the world, that which is suffering, and that which binds us to the endless cycle of birth and death. Even though you know this, you're unable to stop stepping on those thorns. The mind still follows various states of joy and sorrow, but doesn't get completely lost in them. You sustain a continuous effort to destroy any attachment in the mind, to clear from the mind all that is the world. Everything external has been set aside at this point. From here on, you just watch body and mind, observing mind and its objects arising and passing away, understanding that having arisen, they pass away. With passing away, there is further arising, birth and death, death and birth, cessation followed by arising, arising followed by cessation. Ultimately, you are merely watching the act of cessation. 
Once the mind is practicing and experiencing this, it doesn't have to go following up or searching for anything else. Instead, it will be aware of whatever arises with full mindfulness. Seeing is just seeing. Knowing is just knowing. The mind and phenomena are just as they are. The mind isn't creating anything additional. So keep practicing, calming the mind little by little. If you start thinking, it doesn't matter. If you're not thinking, it doesn't matter. The important thing is to develop this understanding of the mind. Well, that's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions, comments? No more. Uh, one here is that, uh, you know, in the chants and all, uh, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, <coughs> death is dukkha. <coughs> yes. And, uh, you know, of course, there is, there is birth, the actual birth and actual death, but can that be also understood as a rising of phenomena is dukkha and yeah. the passing away of phenomena is dukkha as well? Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, that's, that's the, uh, you know, in the end, uh, that sense of, <coughs> yeah, birth and, and, and death is, is, is much more around the arising and ceasing of phenomena, whether it's mental phenomena or physical phenomena, external phenomena, internal phenomena. And there's that, because it's the same process. Um, and the actual uh, say physical birth is is predicated on that that cycle of of uh, greed, hatred, delusion. That cycle of attachment and becoming. Yeah, I have another question. Uh, what is meant by uh, skillful means? Uh, well, skillful means are the the, the different <coughs> tools of the practice. I mean, mindfulness itself is a tool. See the, the, the moral precepts and restraint, sense restraint. These are all skillful means, or things. Whether it's like mindfulness of breathing, or mindfulness of the body, thirty-two parts of the body, loving kindness, or uh, these are all sort of skillful means that we uh, apply, like techniques or practices or ways of directing attention that we apply and then observe so that we can learn and understand from them. So then it becomes a skillful means. Say unskillful means are things that, and skillful, say the result of skillful means will always be, say, more understanding, more clarity, more peace. Uh, unskillful means are the things that sort of increase our confusion and, and agitation. Thank you. Uh, it's more, more of a comment. I just love... Uh how Ajahn Shah, he like talk about fruit, path and fruit, but like in that paradigm of relinquishing rather than uh, attaining. Yes, yes, it's. I think it's really important because um, the uh, just the nature of the mind is to go to to concretize what I get, what I gain, what I am, what I should be, and. Uh, and and then the emphasis on, you know, rather than, because there is no end to that, really, uh, but the emphasis on what can I let go, what can I relinquish, what can I drop, that's, that's uh, one is a bit more direct, 
uh, and it has, has uh, say, much, much better results in the sense of a sense of you know, peace arising from that. Yeah, so I appreciate his uh, Lumpur's description of you start practicing, start getting really critical, hypercritical, and judgmental of everybody. Yeah. It's like one stage of, uh, you know, you see, like I can recollect being like that and also see see it sometimes when people start out and very, very sincere. But then it's like, you know, uh, like I remember uh, going out into the world and like seeing people eat and then thinking like, they're not keeping the sakier rules. <laughs> and I had to remind myself, oh wait, they're not monks. So they have no knowledge of these things. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's 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 helpful to to see that that uh, you know even in the cultivation of what is good, we can still create suffering. <laughs> okay. <laughs>